0: What's up, guys? Welcome to a couple of the podcast with your hosts, Matt Trautwechter and myself, Peter Frindra. This is a podcast called current health news and hotness topics, one conversation at a time. Thank you guys for following. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your downloads. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram. Ask Matt a few questions. <laughs> Ask us a few
1: questions. Ask owners a few questions. And yeah, how's it going, Matt? Great, man. I'd like to introduce our guest today, which I'm excited to have around. Her name is Alex Zrubeck. She is a clinical psychology major, and she's finally starting her counseling rotation. Rotation. How are you doing today, Alex?
2: Um, I'm doing awesome. Yeah, today's been a nice, productive day, and now we get to talk about mental health.
1: Great. So, give us a little background of what. How did you get into mental health? What's your, what's your little, thriving point of why you wanted to get into like psychology?
2: Um, so I think the major push point for me wanting to get into psychology was seeing a major need and a major lack of accessibility to mental health services. I know that when it comes to certain communities, um, there's definitely certain parts of the world. Even in the U.S., there are certain places where Some people must travel 20, 30 miles one way in order to be able to see someone um, for their mental health needs, which is crazy because if I look up my own zip code from where I live right now, I have a practicing psychologist that's literally less than a mile away and I could walk to their office. Um, So besides accessibility... Also, the fact that, um, you know, there's all these people in my friend group and they were all like, I want to help people. I want to do this. And I was definitely interested in helping people, but just in a way that's not um, not. I guess, accessed enough, like that venue of mental health. Like sure, you could go to a doctor, that's normal. Everybody does it, right? You go see a nutritionist, everybody does it. But when it comes to seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist, that's a little bit less popular. And I kind of wanted to get there because I know that there's a lot of people that need those services, they need that help. And I want to be there for them.
0: Hmm. So me and Matt come from like an ICU background. So, like, my question is because we don't really know too much about, like, mental health or, like, the onboarding process of somebody that is, like, mentally ill. Like, if someone with mental illness, how do they get brought into the system? Do they first come to the ER and then the ER sends them off to, like, a mental health clinic? Or do they present usually in a mental health clinic and a psychologist? Like, how do they, they first present themselves to, like, the whole, like, mental health spectrum?
2: Um, so, there's several ways that you can end up getting mental health treatment. One of them is community. So uh, whether you're living in, you know, San Diego, Washington D.C., Chicago, there's mental health services at community-based centers, and these people start off with the the leaders of the community center. They'll provide you with some workshops or maybe some inter or not. Some places where uh, they'll do like small speeches or small presentations, they'll go from schools to like gyms in the area and they'll give speeches and presentations about mental health issues that could be um, going on in that area. And that's how some people will identify in themselves, those people that listen to those presentations, um, they'll be like, listen, I really uh that resonates with me what they said I feel like I could potentially fit that category I need more info to be sure so they'll go to that community center they'll see someone they'll speak to someone usually there are um social workers at these places or there are um like LCPs so clinical psychologists that can see them um and from there uh Another way that you can see someone and end up getting mental health treatment is either going directly to see like a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And one of them is an MD, so the psychiatrist is the MD. If depending on your insurance, you could schedule yourself an appointment with your psychiatrist and be like, hey, I think I have anxiety. I need to get some help. Can I see you? Or, you know, you can do the same thing with a psychologist and be like, hey, I think I have anxiety or depression. I'd like to speak to someone. Um, The final two ways, one of them would be if you are having a major crisis situation, you would end up in the ER and that's when you, you know, see the ER nurse or whoever and you go through a whole intake interview and then that's way... That's where they usually decide, depending on how severe your problem is, if we're keeping you there for the next 24, 48 hours, and then we're gonna send you to a partial hospitalization program, or if we're gonna keep you hospitalized for the next 21 days or whatever. Last, I guess this also goes along with the hospital setting. If you're going to see a doctor, and this would be like your general practitioner, but you also have you know, other doctors in the same building, uh, you tell your general practitioner during your physical or something like that, like, hey, I think I've been experiencing these symptoms. They should ask you at every single physical um, that, you know, if, if you're feeling depressed or you feeling anxious, having a hard time sleeping, have you noticed changes in weight loss, you know, regular questions like that. And your general doctor should be able to then tell you, you know, I think you should see somebody that specializes in mental health. So I want to say those are like the top four ways that you can get help. But, you know, there are other ways like churches. Not many people may know about this, but a lot of priests, pastors, they actually have degrees in, um, it's like religious counseling. Like you can go get help from them and they are trained the same way that we are. So they'll be able to do therapy, you know, family counseling, couples counseling, you can go to those people for help, too. And if it's out of their hands or if it's something that, you know, is more severe and then they can't handle it at the church, they'll refer you on to a doctor or somebody else.
1: So I want to kind of like set the setting pre-COVID. Okay. I, know, I know that in mental health, I, it's, not, it's not looked upon, right? It, it's always getting defunded in a way. And I know like looking at news, you know, we had mental health crises, especially with the homeless people and all that. Is there a larger barrier to entry now for mental health because of the way, you know, facilities are getting defunded and all that by the government?
2: So there's always um, stigma and there's always the whole like, okay, if you have a broken arm, people can see your arm is broken and they know and respect the fact that you're getting a cast put on and you're getting your issue fixed. But when it comes to problems, you know, internal issues that like maybe they don't see it right away, they don't take the problem as seriously and they don't view the problem as being something that might need to also be healed. They might think like, oh, you know, you'll get over it, you'll sleep it off, or you just got to think more positively and it'll go away. And that is happening right now where it's a lot harder to get into an office because of the barrier when it comes to technology the wait lists not a lot of people are willing to go make that first appointment to see a psychiatrist psychologist or whoever social worker they so that's already putting them you know behind like they don't want to make that first appointment but now that that first appointment has to be a video call instead of being an in-office visit, it kind of puts them off even more. So you have these people who maybe a year ago, they would have conquered that fear, went to the office the first time, realized it's not so bad, kept on coming back, but maybe this year you had to get on Zoom or you had to get on 4x4, whatever the other ones are, and you you can't do it because you're scared of being on camera, you have technology issues, you don't have access to good Wi-Fi. you don't have access to a video camera enabled device. So that kind of puts you back and um, there is that big barrier right now.
0: Like for mental health, and. Like to me, it not only encompasses like you know schizophrenia, schizophrenia, and like bipolar disorder, like all those mental, like the mental diseases that we think of, like if you think of mental health. But there's also like the other spectrum where it's like mild cases of like anxiety and stress. So how much of like the clinical work and like you in like the clinic is like deciphering is it an actual mental health disease or just like somebody having just a lot of stress and anxiety. Like where's like um, like how do you differentiate between like this is an actual mental disease and compared to if this is just like a episode of just like stressed stress. So if that makes sense.
2: I wish I had a simple answer, mm-hmm. but it's usually case by case. So we look at it as um, how hard is this person having of a time doing daily activities because my stress you know, if you had that similar stress, you might be having anxiety and panic attacks every single day dealing with the same amount of stress or dealing with the same, you know, traumatic situation that I went to. You might be um, dealing with it in such a way that you can't get out of bed, you can't get out of the house to go buy groceries and then us people in the mental health field are like, okay, that's not okay. If you can't function on a daily basis, that's obviously not right, so we're gonna work with you. But then there are some people that, you know, they might not be dealing with it in such a severe way, obviously, case by case. Um, But we can't say that we won't treat them, and we won't say that we don't give them diagnosis. We have to, for insurance purposes. And for, you know, work purposes, we have to write something so that they see a valid reason for us to be treating that person. But if they say even one or two things like, hey, I think I'm depressed or I'm feeling really down, you know, it could be something super simple. Like, I get super nervous when I have to drive in the car because I was in an accident a couple weeks ago. Maybe they're not qualifying to have like acute stress, you know, issues or PTSD, so post traumatic stress disorder. But we wouldn't deny them treatment, and we wouldn't say that they are diagnosed with something. We would give them some diagnosis. So in our DSM, which is the diagnostic manual for where we get like all these diseases, there are categories that we can use to kind of catch the, it's like there's a catch-all category. So in that category, would be someone that's maybe not experiencing all the symptoms needed for schizophrenia, or all the symptoms needed for major depressive disorder, but they're Experiencing some, or even one or two, and we will still treat these people because the fact that they already made the point of asking for help and voicing the fact that something's going on and speaking up, we already see that as hey, if something's not right with them, they need help. And we're not gonna say, oh, you're feeling sad for a couple days, no big deal, walk it off. Like, we will help them no matter what.
1: I like how you said that, like if they acknowledge this help, because I think that's like the stigma in like healthcare as well is that like we as nurses, as physicians, everything else, like we have to be mentally tough and we can't, we can't be seeking help, you know, because we're the ones that are giving help. And I think that's what we're starting to see too. Like I was looking up an article, like, um, physician suicide rates is like 1.4 times up. So as, um, any kind of healthcare worker, like nurses and all that. And it's like, you know, we kind of like brush it off. We kind of say, it's okay. I, I could handle it. And we just kind of have like this pressure build up upon us where you see, you know, nurses calling off. You see them having the whole burnout phase that we always mention. We have them calling off, you know, and it's not um, talked about.
2: Yeah. Um,. I mean, when it comes to suicide, you do see there's a lot of research, which I wanted to talk about actually today, about how people who are constantly exposed to death, to gore, to extreme danger, to situations you know, that people are dying or people are on their deathbed, um, they see this and it makes them more susceptible to take their own life. Because they see it, they're around it all the time, and they kind of not build up a tolerance for it, but they do build up like a, they're used to it. So, you know, if this person's dying and their death was quick and painless, whatever, mine could be the same way. And, you know, it's not a slippery slope. Obviously, suicide doesn't happen overnight. It's a very hard thing that people go through and they have to be in a lot of mental pain. To get to that point where they will commit suicide, but nurses, you know, there's even a study where you compare vets who euthanize animals and vets who don't euthanize. Who do you think has the higher cases of suicides?
0: I'm going to guess the ones that euthanize.
2: Exactly. Because they're just exposed to that death. They see it every single day. Um, To them, it's something, you know, that they see, they're used to, they witness it, um, they kind of get a little bit desensitized. They don't think of it as such a big deal because they're around it so much. So it's easier for them to commit to that.
1: Do you, do you think you have easier time coping? This is to Peter, you know, with, um, with everything that you're seeing. Cause for example, when I started, I did ICU right and I had a hard time seeing things and I seen families suffer. And sometimes I took this shit home. Right. And what I call it is now I have like this on and off switch and I tried to, just switch off my feelings in a way when I leave work and not think about this stuff. So I don't know if that's a healthy coping mechanism. Am, am I just suppressing it in? I don't know. But I feel like you just can't take work home because there's those nurses that will call the unit and be like, hey, how's that patient doing? Or the next day they're like, oh, how was patient so-and-so? And we really do care about these people and we follow up with them. And it sucks when, you know, things don't go well. And usually in the ICU is, we usually see the worst of the worst and more than often, people don't go the the happier route in a way with some outcomes.
0: Yeah, like like unfortunately, like like with me, like I've seen a few family members like, die in a hospital, so I feel like I was like, accustomed to it, I don't wanna say like more of a younger age, but just, I feel like I've seen it so much so often where it, it's just like, the way I see it, it's just like part of life. Like, I expect to see people die. Like, you know, I, I go into work saying that, hey, somebody might, might die today and it's just, that's just how, how it how it goes. You know, I maybe in the beginning I would like disassociate myself from that. Um but now it's like like Alex said, like, like you, you you see it so often so so much and you deal with it so much where it just becomes kind of kinda of like, like the norm. Like I don't really th- like think of like suicide or, or like me dying except like a few times when I'm like like in the past, but but yeah, like in the beginning I used to just dissociate dissociate myself from like that situation, like physically, mentally, like I was there more of like you know, like a robotic sense, just me doing tasks and not really focusing on that the person's actually dying. It's more of like me just doing these tasks. And then I would kind of, yeah, and, and like I know this guy was dying, but I would kind of just like blank that part out. Like just me doing tasks. Um, but like I have a question. So like if somebody does have like suicidal ideation, like what's like the best route that they should take? Let's just say like, um, someone just have, has these thought, thoughts like more, more often than, than, than not. Let's say it's like a once a week thing, like once a, once a month thing. Like, well, what steps could they take to kind of better themselves before they actually commit suicide? Because we know that if you keep thinking about it, like your chances of actually committing suicide are a lot greater than if you don't think about it, right?
2: Well, there is a difference between somebody who thinks about it and somebody who is capable and able to go through with it. So there are some people, and we like to say that they're in mental pain, because when you think about suicide, taking your own life is probably the hardest and like most painful and most enduring. And it's like the hardest workout you've ever had to do. Right. Because It's not gonna be easy. It won't be like, oh, you know, we'll just hit a button and that's it, lights out. This is something that takes a lot of energy, a lot of planning, a lot of, um, like you have to have a certain set of skills to actually even be able to get there. So there are some people who, you know, they might be depressed, they might be anxious, they might be going through a bunch of things. But let me even back up and say that most suicides that we see, they're not people who are being treated for mental health issues. They're usually people who are being treated in the hospital for some disease or something that is going to be with them for the rest of their life. And they're in so much pain and they're suffering so much that they think that the only way to get a sense of relief is to do that, is to commit suicide. So um, most of these people... We want to say that about 70% of people, and I'm going off of um, research from Thomas Joyner, who is, I want to say, like my idol when it comes to suicide studies, but we want to say 70% of people who actually end up successfully committing suicide will say something about it. So just like I say, hey, you know, I'm going to go get a haircut tomorrow, nobody goes up to me and says, you won't do it. You're just talking out of your ass or something like that. People do say that when it comes to somebody who raises concerns or raises their voice about committing suicide. So the moment you hear somebody saying something like that is the moment that you have to start taking them seriously. And when it comes to like a mental health professional perspective, you always have to gauge the situation and make sure like, hey, is there anything in their home that they're going to be able to do this with? Um, is this person, does, do they have the capability and the, the skill set to actually go through with it? Or are they just saying that? And we never want to say that, you know, it's just a cry for help or something. Because it is a cry for help and it's a cry for um, the pain to stop, the suffering to end because they're at their wits end where they see no other option besides doing that. So we see a lot of people suffering from like um, early onset, like arthritis or um, fibromyalgia. You know, these people have chronic illnesses. They're in pain every single day. They don't see a way out there is no drug to help them and um, they get to the point of desperation and point of just like no return where this is what they're gonna do because they're tired of being in pain their life to them it doesn't make sense to keep living if this is how it's gonna go for the rest of you know however long they're gonna live this is what they're gonna do but you, you did ask about people bettering themselves Obviously, you need to communicate with people around you, your loved ones, your family members. Um, One of the biggest issues that let me go off my little chart here is if you perceive that you are a burden to people around you or you think like, hey, life would be a lot better and my family and my friends would be a lot better off if I wasn't around, that's a big warning sign. Like when you're getting into that territory where you're starting to weigh the options of you being there versus you passing away, that's already like, hey, you know, you got to tell someone so that we can get you help. It might get to the point where we have to sign a contract with you and basically state in that contract like I will not end my life in the next 24 hours and then re-sign that contract with your loved ones with your doctor with you know your psychiatrist psychologist you might have to do that every single day until that passes or you start getting better those feelings start going away but um depending on how severe it is I don't like to do this and we're taught, you know, we never break confidentiality whatever, but if you think that you're going to do it or you think you're getting to that point, call 911. Because a visit at the ER or a visit at a hospital for 24, 48 hours, you know, 70 something, that's going to be time enough for you to consider that, but time enough for you to get um analyzed by a certain group of people to see like what kind of risk you are to yourself and you will also get a crap ton of resources while you're there. So they're not going to let you leave. Like if I were to call 911 right now and say, "Hey, I know someone that is suicidal. I think they're going to hurt themselves." They're going to pick that person up. They're not letting them leave that hospital until they have an appointment made to go see a professional like a mental health professional, psychiatrist, psychologist, they have to call that person within a certain time span after they leave that hospital. They're not leaving that hospital on their own. They're getting picked up by someone who is then technically in charge of caring for them. And they're that person's responsibility. So like, you know, I pick you up from the hospital, I'm not letting you out of my sight for the next however long it takes. Because you already told me that you are feeling suicidal. You know, you have knives in the house. You have pills in the house. You have whatever it is that you could use. Your house is not a safe place. You're not a safe person right now. So I'm not going to let you out of my sight. And that's, that's where we start when it comes to suicidal thoughts, feelings, ideation, you know. We start with that and then we kind of start eliminating some things and return to a sense of normalcy. But high alert is the first thing.
0: I don't know if you remember like a few years back there was some people were like promoting this piece of legislature that was or they were trying to push this legislature that would allow people to legally commit suicide. So we've heard of those these syndromes that
1: Physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, physician, physician-assisted yeah.
0: suicide where people have severe pain or their seizures are so bad where they literally can't function and they're just like in pain or suffering all day. So do you, do you believe in like that, like a physician-assisted suicide?
2: I, I mean, that's a hard question because I feel like we punish people right now like if someone were to shoot themselves in the foot or something they'd be they'd be in the hospital but then they're going to jail right mm. so we should be giving people these choices to make but how do we know that at that point in time when that person makes that choice they're in a stable enough mindset to be able to make a clear concise choice where they weighed the options and they didn't weigh the, you know, like they looked at the pros and the cons and the consequences and like what the future would be like without them there. Because I know a lot of countries, I don't know if it's Sweden or the or Finland, wherever, one of the Norwegian countries, they do that. But to be able to qualify for that sort of thing and to be able to actually have it performed on you, it's not like, it happens next week if I tell them that I'm interested in that today. It's a long process because they want to make sure that they dot all their I's and they cross all their T's so that later on down the line, nobody's suing you. Or nobody comes up with evidence saying like, hey, this person was not in the right mind to be making this choice. Just like you get um, a psyche valve before Being um, questioned in court for example if you were to commit a crime or do something like that you're on trial you're going to get a psych eval Um, we're doing the same thing for this uh, physician assisted suicide so it's not just an easy process and I'm sure you know some people qualify for it and if they want to do that that's their choice but I I don't know
1: I believe Oregon is the only state in America that has that ability but I think they have, like, qualification, just like you say, criteria, and I think it might be, like, end of life. Yeah. It's not like, oh, my life sucks. Let me just, you know, kind of, like, hit the kill switch on me. Yeah. And now I'm just wondering, so let's go into post or currently our pandemic that we have. How has mental health changed now?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How has the lockdown slash pandemic affected mental health? And how, how is mental health overall during this time?
2: Um, So I've been reading some studies coming out from countries like China or India, you know, Korea. Um, There's a lot of suggestions that everybody has to put in place to make sure that mental health isn't taking a back burner and that we're still caring about others and making sure that people aren't suffering during this time. And they focus on a lot of things, but especially loneliness So right now during this time, you know, as human beings, even if we're not in the same, like, conversation, just being in a room with other people, as human beings, we're already feeling that, like, connection, we feel better by interacting with others. I don't even have to talk to you, but just the fact that I'm sitting in a room next to you, or, you know, you're five feet away that feels like some sort of interaction, and you feel better because you're not lonely. You have somebody there that you can spark up a conversation with, and with COVID and the whole lockdown, I mean, I was okay because I have a family that I live with, You know, three other people that I could talk to and whatnot, but it just makes you think about these people who are living in an apartment in a city that's millions of miles away from their family they can't really go anywhere because everything is closed you're not supposed to be mingling with people outside of your household and that's when we see people are getting lonely they're not really taking care of themselves because as social beings we get these cues to dress up you know go out do our hair do our makeup whatever um to go out but now without like a motivating factor you're not really doing those things and we see that people they're not necessarily becoming depressed i mean some of them are some of them might get anxious because they feel like the pandemics is going to last forever um they wanted to plan out the rest of the year but with things like uncertainty being super big right now we see a lot of anxiety situational anxiety there's People who literally cannot function unless they know what's gonna happen next week or the week after. They're you know, that's just how they function, that's their personality, their characteristics. So imagine being that person and like when March came around in Chicago, one week you're going to the grocery store, you're going to the club, you're going to the mall, and then the week after you can't do any of those things. And you don't you don't know when that's gonna stop. Um, it's really hard on people like that because you can't really plan out your day. You can't be yourself and you're sort of stuck in a limbo where you're seeking something else that's going to help you adapt. So yes, you know, humans, that we're very plastic. We can, what I mean, you know, plasticity, we can adapt. We can overcome these situations. It's just some, it might take them longer to get used to it than others. But... You know, we're also not seeing like an increasing amount of people committing suicide or ending up in the ER or things like that. Um, There is a study and I wanna mention this because I thought this was crazy. Um, Back in the day when 9-11 happened, what did you guys think would be the response of the people? Did you think that people would be panicking so hard because of the attack on the Twin Towers and everywhere else that they'd be committing mass suicides? Or do you think that that traumatic event would make people band together, come together and, you know, seek solace in that event?
0: I mean, I was kind of young to kind of have that kind of like a thought process. But now when I think of like natural disasters or terrorism or war, or things like that, I feel like that leads more to nationalism, more than kind yeah. of like suicide and and, like, like, yeah, there's sadness, but I feel like nationalism and coming together as a country, not necessarily always in the in right way. Because yeah. as humans, like, eventually we're going to lead to, like, globalization where we're all on this earth together and we all see things, like, together, you know. But unfortunately, like, war and terrorism, I feel like that separates us. Even though it brings the country together, that country is kind of isolated and separated from everybody else.
2: So you did mention natural disasters and, you know, um, terrorism. Uh, Remember Sandy Hook or Hurricane Katrina. just like COVID's happening right now, where it's a major disaster, a lot of states have uh, determined that they're going through a state of emergency and they're declaring that it's a statewide disaster. COVID has had that same effect on people. So, kind of opposing what I just said about the loneliness and the anxiety and all that, um, things like these events they bring people together because. These people start to think outside of themselves. These people, all of us, basically, we're all going through this. Um, it makes us think not about ourselves, not just about ourselves, not just about our family, but our friends, our neighbors, you know, people living on our street, people that we work with. It's bringing us together because we now have a common goal and we're all. United by this issue we're experiencing the same thing we're sure you know I might not be going through it as hard as the person next door to me who couldn't buy toilet paper two weeks ago but we're all experiencing the same issue and now we can come together and try to overcome that event so with what I mentioned after 9-11 we had seen the lowest amount of suicide attempts and successful suicides To this day. And right now, hopefully, when we get the data for, you know, when COVID's over and we're finally wrapping things up, we're predicting that that data is going to reflect that. Mm -hmm. Because you probably did hear about certain cases of suicides because of COVID, but that's what we like to call irresponsible media reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, But besides that, besides these singular, you know, cases... We're we're thinking that the data is going to point to lower and lower amounts of suicides happening because of that um, unity.
1: I I feel like the first few months, like let's just say March to May, there was unification, right? We were all kind of like together, okay, the whole globe is going through this, we're going to get through it. And then as soon as the media started reporting on the protests and everything else that happened, I feel like everything took the spin for the wrong direction, at least from a media standpoint. I feel like America just went into this whole divide and conquer where, okay, you're supporting cops or you're supporting Black Lives Matter. And it was was just like this whole thing on the media. And even right now, like just recording it now, like it's still, you know, pre-election and there's just so much shit happening. Like I don't like going on – I go on the gram often, yeah. but I don't like going on Facebook or Reddit sometimes because it's just damn negative. You, you, they've created the media. Have created these people that are just like everything is political. Masks has have become a political, you know, tool right now, and it, and it's sad to see.
2: Um, I mean, I know from just articles and stuff that's not even news articles, but research articles. You can see the effects of media reporting and, like I said, irresponsible media reporting, because let's circle back to what I said about people that are being exposed to death and gore and traumatic situations every single day. One major trigger factor for them to make the choice to end their life could be hearing about some other suicide on the news you know that could be enough to make them take their own life to make that decision to end it because like the media is exposing them to this right now they're giving them details they're showing pictures well obviously not like all the pictures and um, they're not going into graphic detail but it's giving them enough to be able to make that choice it's kind of like when you're teeter-tottering you know you see this media article on cnn abc fox news that's enough to set that person over the edge so media right now probably not our friend when it comes to mental health i would suggest that we limit the time spent looking at the news and making sure that we're only looking at credible sources we're only looking at the news that pertains to us personally, local news, because local news is where you're going to be able to find, you know, is your state going into a lockdown? Is your specific city going to have different guidelines that you need to follow? But try to limit your exposure to these things because for your overall mental health, you will do a lot better without having constantly being blasted by all these negative headlines.
0: Have you done any like background on like kids?
2: Kids like, you know, right
0: now. Yeah, because like my opinion is so with the school year being now, gonna be it's gonna be in session or, or is in session. Um, like I'm sure you've seen the pictures of like these kids being isolated. Yeah. Do you think that's gonna lead to like more anti-social behavior, more like depression, and even um, more like issues with sleep because as kids we were used to running around, like we need to burn off that steam. Like we have a high metabolic rate, and we gotta keep moving. Yeah. So. I, I could imagine sometimes it's hard for me to fall asleep if I don't get like a good gym session. I could imagine like a kid, how are they supposed to like sleep? That's, I feel that's going to cause like a lot of issues down the road if, if mm-hmm. our bodies aren't able to adapt. But you said like we might have like a special mechanism somewhere in our in psychology where it allows us to like adapt. Like you said, during like emergencies where we're able to come together. Yeah. But for kids, I mean, they're very plastic. Yeah. So I wonder how they're going to turn out. Like is this going to be like a, like a dark path for them?
2: Well, right now, you know, it's a it's not it's a fairly young issue that we're going through because they were in the classroom a couple months ago, like in March. Right now, if there're students that are going back to school and they're fully remote, they could do whatever they want at home. It's probably really hard for their parents to get them to sit in front of that Zoom camera and attend their lessons, but I can't imagine how difficult it must be for a teacher in a classroom with 25 to 30 students. They're maybe second, third grade. They're not wearing their masks. Um, they're touching each other because that's what they're going to do. They're little kids. These kids. You know, you picture like a second grader or third grader. Their shirt's probably dirty, covered in chocolate milk. They have like grime under their fingernails. They're sniffing glue, eating crayons. (laughs) These are not the kids who you can sit down and have a discussion with and explain to them why they need to be social distancing, why they can't be running around, why they shouldn't be eating crayons, and why it's important to wash your hands with soap and warm water for 20 seconds at a time. So these kids, you know, they're going to have to adapt and they probably will. It's just going to be a very tough path for the teacher and the parents to get them to sit down and do what they're supposed to do. Um, And I can't imagine being in a position where I would have to have a classroom of all these kids and basically telling them like, hey, you know, other people's lives depend on the fact that you guys aren't touching each other or wrestling each other during recess.
1: That's a very good point. My question to you is, if I am evaluating my own life and I'm asking myself whether I have good mental health, what would that compose of?
2: Obviously, it's always a case-by-case individual issue, but do you have a roof over your head? Yes. Do you take a shower every single day or, you know, every other day?
1: Twice a day sometimes.
2: Okay. Damn, dude. Um,
1: <laughs> I got a sweat. I play soccer at a gym. a baby ass immune I like yeah. somebody's got to be dirty for a <laughs> little Why aren't
2: you rolling around in the dirt? Well, yeah, now. dude. I
1: got to eat soil just to compensate for two exactly. showers. I'm throwing in that moss over there. Okay. Yes.
2: <laughs> Lick the underside of somebody's yeah. shoe or something. But, you know, you, you just go off the hierarchy of remember maslow did you learn about maslow i would go off of that and just say is my is my life meaningful to me am i doing something every single day do i wake up excited to start the day and i take that with a grain of salt because there's people right now that are probably not very happy with the current job they have but they know that it's only temporary and it's maybe like a stepping stone for whatever they want to do next but um, you know, do do you feel like you are fulfilled in life? Do you feel like you are proud of yourself? Like if your five year old or two year old, three year old self saw you right now, would you be making your younger self proud? Have you gotten to the point? You know, have you gotten to accomplish things that you wanted to accomplish? If not, you know that would be a place where you would evaluate things. But. It starts off with the little things. Are you able to function every single day normally? Can you feed yourself? Can you go up and down the stairs? Can you drive from point A to point B? Or are you relying on somebody else for that care? Are you not able to function unless like your mom or your dad comes in and checks up on you every single day? Um, You always start off with the basic needs and then you keep moving higher and higher and higher are you secure? Do you feel like this is a safe place to live? Do you feel like you can go to bed at night without feeling like you know somebody's gonna break into your house? Um, do you have compassion for others? Just simple questions, but then obviously you build up, and that's how I would gauge if my mental health's going fine. If I didn't shower that day because I was too stressed out, or if I haven't eaten in three days, You know, that might be a warning sign. Mm -hmm. So I would stop asking myself at that like lowest level of the hierarchy of needs because I already see that something's not right if I'm not even able to do the basic things. Mm
1: -hmm. I like like that. And I'm kind of blanking on my question here. I had a very good question. So (laughs) what's fascinating you right now in the mental health field? Like what's one thing that you're just like blown away or what's one of your like obsessions in that right now of mental health? I know we mentioned suicide a lot. A lot. Is there anything else that you're very, you know, interested in?
2: Well, um, I have a couple of classmates that are into like art therapy and um, just doing things with your hands and applying yourself and doing other things in the hopes of betterment of your condition or you know whatever you're experiencing. Working with that. And I recently discovered somebody on YouTube. um, It's a guy, he is like a veteran. Um, He has a channel called My Therapy Garden. And to me, it's fascinating that there are therapists out there, there are doctors out there who are actually telling people hey, you can get out there, you can dig in the dirt, you can. Tear up your whole front lawn and apply yourself to this task of gardening and creating something with your hands, you know, sweating, putting your back into it because it's therapeutic. And these people don't even realize, you know, like maybe taking a shovel and digging this hole might not make a lot of sense right now. But when you look at them like three months ago and you look at them now, you see all these improvements because they are able to express themselves and they're able to uh, reach like a sense of relaxation and escape whatever it is that's bothering them through that, like hobby or whatever skill they picked up and i think that we need to do a lot more studying of things like therapy gardens or you know applying yourself in like pottery or art and stuff like that just to see people's baseline prior to starting something like that and then to see somebody like 3 months into it and then maybe a year, 2 years into it and then let's say we stop that hobby let's let's see what that person's feeling like now i just think that non traditional forms of medication or like therapy because I would say a therapy garden would be like a non-traditional form of medicating yourself if you sit there for eight hours a day and you're digging a hole sweating in the sun and planning out your garden you can't argue with me and say that that's not having an effect on your mental but also your physical health yeah. so I think that it's very exciting and there's all these venues that we might need to look at because they are benefiting people. And it's not just sitting in a room across from me and telling me how you feel every single day. We could be looking at other ways to treat people.
0: So like for us, like as nurses, and for me specifically working on like the the cardiac field for the most part, do you guys have like protocols for different types of mental illnesses that people come in with? Like, is there like a, like for example, like when somebody comes in with cardiovascular disease, you know, we try to, change their diet, make it more active, uh, then we put on a beta block, or if they come in for heart failure, guess what, they're gonna get the anotrope. Is there different like levels to treatment for people that come up with, with mental illness? and Or is it just straight medication? Because there's also that spectrum with medication that the regular standard treatment modalities aren't gonna work. So do you guys use like alternative therapies? Like you mentioned gardening, but do you guys use like other like off-label used drugs, um, like maybe meditation or like psychedelics or different, different alternative medication that that don't work for like a typical individual
2: so um you guys know about xanax Mm. and how there's all these things about xanax and it's so bad for you but then there's some people who can't survive a day without it because they're having a panic attack some of these people We are giving them smoking cessation drugs or we're giving them, um, it's blood pressure medicine because that like therapeutic effect of the blood pressure medicine it lowers their blood pressure in turn making them feel calmer you know their heart rate is down um, they're very relaxed so there is definitely a lot of treatments that we use that are not off the books but they they have the same effect it's just we're trying to eliminate that like addicting factor like xanax has or whatever other um drug you're using. But then we also think of it this way, why are we only treating issues with medication? Why aren't we doing a two-pronged system where we're treating somebody with medication, so you're seeing your psychiatrist every couple of weeks, but you are getting therapy twice a week, once a week, every single day for five days straight. We can't just say that we're gonna toss some pills at someone Expect them to follow that medicine regimen every single day because you all know nobody's going to do it. Like the first couple weeks you're taking those um, blood pressure meds, they make you feel like garbage because you have less energy, you feel like kind of drowsy, sleepy, slow, lethargic. These people aren't going to stick to this regimen. When you put somebody that's diabetic on a diet and this diet sucks, they're not used to what they've been eating because it's not that they're eating like healthier things or you know whatever they're eating it's hard to keep them on that regimen so that's why we kind of need to supplement that with something else we need to make sure that this person is not just seeing their psychiatrist once or twice a month we got to make sure that somebody's checking up ...up on them and they're giving them a set of tools that they can use to deal with that issue that's not just a drug. The drug can help and they can complement each other, but we also need to give them the tools and the skills... For their own self and their own sense of self-efficacy, that they're able to do it on their own and they're able to have the power to take control of their own life and head on deal with their issue on their own without just knocking it down and saying like, it was no big deal. It was a Xanax that helped. No, it was the skills that you learned in therapy, you know, with your psychiatrist, your social worker, with your caseworker, whoever, the skills that they gave you, that they taught you, you used in that situation that was causing you anxiety. And overall, that's what helped you overcome that situation. The Xanax might have complemented and might have helped, but eventually, what's going to take you further? Is it going to be the medication? Or is it going to be the skills that you're learning and maybe from those skills, you're also getting insight about what's triggering your anxiety, about um, what situations are you in that might cause anxiety in the future and how you're going to deal with those situations maybe, you know, in a year or two, you might be moving across the country and that might give you a lot of anxiety. How are you going to prepare yourself for those things? So it's that two-prong approach that we really want to stress because... Medication can only do so much for you, but if you're not understanding the problem, you're not having more than a fifteen minute visit with your doctor, you're not gonna be able to get as much out of your treatment as you could be getting.
0: Yeah, that two prong approach is, a, is is like is a key. It's a good metaphor, right? It's a metaphor. So i like, since you talk about the two prong, um, like the two prong idea, what do you think about religion? Because I've kind of seen both spectrums of religion, not personally, but uh, like like I've heard because my one of my professors in college he was raised like non-religious and he ended up being like a drug user, had a bunch of psych issues, but then he started going to church and like you know he found God or Jesus, Jesus, and like he completely changed his life. He became he could become a professor, and then his life is so much better. But then like I've seen the other spectrum as well, where these parents push religion on, on these like on these kids, and then these kids grow up with this religion that they don't really agree with, but they, they have to follow it because that's the way they've been raised and they struggle with it. And up until they, they they leave that religion, they're miserable. And then once they leave like the occult, whatever you want to call it, like they, they feel a lot better. So how does religion play into like the whole psychology?
2: Well, um, it depends on what you're using religion for. Are you using religion as a coping strategy? Are you looking at God and asking him... Why did I get raped last weekend? Where was God then? You know, are you turning all your negatives and all your faults and all these consequences and just asking God for an answer? Because some people do use religion as a coping strategy and as somewhere to turn to when they don't necessarily know, you know, there's situations that you can't explain because that's just how life is. And you have to learn to accept that a lot of things in life are out of our control and it's our reaction and how we adapt to that situation. That's like good mental health, the positive and great way that you're gonna respond to whatever life throws at you, that's what happens. But when it comes to religion, you have to really think about the motivating factors for you to be following that religious group. Are you in a cult? Or a super serious, like hardcore religion? Because if you're not, you're going to get ostracized and removed from your family. And you'll never be able to talk to your mom again. Or do you just go to church every Sunday with your parents because that's how it's always been and it's more of a tradition rather than you know you getting something out of it because you know there are a lot of people like that in your friend groups that just do things because they have more of a symbolic type of like they're not virtuous people at all they're not having you know they're not like oh I'm not gonna have sex before marriage or I don't drink or do drugs because God told me not to they're doing this more because that's the way that it's always been done so there's a lot of different ways that you can be a practicing christian or practicing jew or you know whatever religion you follow it's just you got to really look at what's motivating you to follow that religion and what's gonna happen you know if you let go of that religion or if you pick up a religion maybe you were never religious before but you went to jail or something, and you converted to whatever religion, Uh, was it convenient for you then? Is that why you did it? Because you wanted to unite with some people? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you you really gotta take a look at it from an outside perspective, and don't condemn religion and say that it's bad, and it's always a bad thing, and people are sheeple, and they're just following these religious leaders blindly. Because some people do get a sense of joy and a sense of happiness and fulfillment because they get to kind of follow something that's outside of them and be part of a group that's, you know, more than just themselves.
1: Very good point. And, like, sometimes they just need a little bit of hope, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially, like, post-addiction and things like that. They need, they need to fill that void, you know. They need somebody to take away the problems because most people either get um, – maybe they get addictions. So I'm not a psychologist here, but um, so we're talking to you know, so, so maybe I'm going to, you know, maybe, mispronounce- they addi- wrong, wrong, maybe they get addicted. You right, know, wrong. It's
2: a substance use mm-hmm. disorder is what you would call it. And you don't have that addiction. You know, it's something that happens to you. Yes. So.
1: Yes. And, and, but a lot of people internalize way too much. Right. And everything goes inside. Everything stems in. And I feel like when people create a religious idol or, you know, they pick up a religion, or they find hope in the universe, whatever. They feel like their problems are not so internal, yeah. And they're external. They put away those problems into that, you know, that religion, that God, whatever the case might be, and they feel life is easier and they could breathe in a way.
2: Yeah, because they have something outside of them. It's not them. It's kind of like you're no longer lonely because there's some outside force that you can talk to and you can vent to, but you can also feel like. Um, life isn't so scary because there's something else out there that you can seek solace in.
0: So have you examined like issues in like the LGBTQ community? Like what do they suffer from the most? Do you know?
2: Uh, well, I can't, we can't write off as... Everybody in that community yeah. suffering from the yeah. same thing because obviously lesbian issues are going to be different than someone who is asexual or someone who's queer, someone who's questioning, which you didn't even put in the, you know, it's QQI, okay? Sorry. There's people who are in... In between, there's people who have some sort of androgen issue where they have both sex organs. You know, all these people are going to be suffering from different things, but a lot of the issues that they're suffering from are unfortunately related to the lack of education, the lack of understanding and compassion from other people. There's a lot of these... Um, People who are going through, uh, you know, a change and they're transitioning to who they really are and they are feeling better every single day because they get to look like who they feel like. But it's everybody in the workplace. It's people that they're encountering at the grocery store and their hurtful comments, their opinions, you know, whatever they project onto that person, that's the big issue. Um, Which, you know, we can always solve all these things if we were to do more education in the classroom, education and more like right now we have a thing in Illinois where basically masks don't work unless you wear them or something like that. You know, if we have a PSA where everybody is seeing this image over and over and over again, that's how we educate people. And that's how we sort of start breaking down the stigma relating to that community of people. It's just sad that a lot of the community attempt suicide. They're dealing with depression. They're dealing with anxiety. Some of them, you know, maybe they went into the women's bathroom because they're currently transitioning to be a woman and it is the rightful place for them to be in that woman's bathroom. But a bunch of women assaulted them and kicked them out of that bathroom. Then they're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder because of that super traumatic event that they dealt with. And All of these things are kind of outside factors. Sure, you know, they might be internalizing some things and some things might be coming from within them where they feel they're not good enough or, you know, they feel like they really don't fit in anywhere. They're having adjustment issues. But as far as I know, most people who go through the transition and most people who do get the surgery are given resources for psychiatric help only because that event is so dramatic and so powerful that it's our responsibility in the healthcare field because this is healthcare whether people like to hear it or not if there's people out there you know who don't believe that these people have the right to do this they do this is healthcare um, they are getting an overall group of people that's helping them through the transition. The plastic surgeon, you know, their general practitioner, their anesthesiologist, the people, their endocrinologist. Um, they're also seeing a psychiatrist, and they're you know seeing a social worker, or some sort of therapist to help them deal with this change.
1: Yeah, e- even for um, a nursing, we had to do modules for that community specifically. How yeah. to you know call them, how to approach them, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed this interview I feel like we have to chat for like part two here because I have like we, do. We, we, could, we could talk about so many things like we'd even scratch the surface of like you know different therapies of like you know how can you mentally cope with different situations? what are the proper ways so we would love to have you back on
2: yes there will be a part two leave your questions because Alex, I would love to answer some <laughs> questions
1: definitely so we'll ch- we'll chat again next time Alex it was a pleasure
2: oh thank you guys for having me I don't have anything to plug. I don't have an Instagram or YouTube, but just leave your questions on Cup of Nurses and I will get back to them.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, Alex. Take care.
2: Bye. (laughs)